0: Welcome back. Welcome back to the School of uh, Theology. I wondered uh, yesterday and today uh, how many there would be here, whether you would still remember how it used to be last year. And uh, it, was an, it was a lovely, long, uh, relaxing summer uh, for me. And uh, now it's uh, now it's back to three months. Uh, of uh, September, October, and November, we'll we'll meet every Wednesday uh, evening. And a uh, couple of things. Uh, first of all, um, I have nothing. I had nothing to do with the fortune cookies. Um, nothing. Absolutely nothing to do with me. So, so I know we studied the doctrine of providence together and uh, that there's no such thing as luck and so on, but I had absolutely nothing to do with that. Uh, and I'm also, I'm ashamed to say, I, th- the word SOT is not in my vocabulary. Uh, I've, I've been told by a number, including my wife, uh, that SOT stands for drunkard. Uh, and uh, what are we doing advertising this word, uh, SOT here? I, I just thought it looked sort of cool, uh, school of Theology, uh, but it's absolutely nothing to do with uh, any Presbyterian view of alcohol or nothing, nothing of that nature. Um, it stands for School of Theology. Uh, we're going to look this uh, fall at Christology. Actually, we're going to look at Christology the whole year, and uh, in the springtime we'll be looking at the work of Christ. Uh, But uh, this fall, we're going to concentrate uh, exclusively on what we uh, refer to as the person uh, of Christ. And uh, our focus is going to be heavily dominated by uh, looking at the humanity uh, of Christ more than the deity of Christ, although this evening we're, we're going to look at the deity of Christ in part uh, we have already looked at the deity of Christ. It was part of our argument for the doctrine of the Trinity, uh, that the Father is God, that the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God, and there is only one God. There is more than one who is the one God. Three persons uh, in, and one essence. Uh, three persons and one God. Uh, so in part, um, the emphasis on the deity of Jesus uh, falls back in our, our look at the doctrine of God, which we looked at last, uh, last fall. But in order to uh, dot all of the I's and, and cross all of the T's, uh, we're, going to, we're going to begin in the first couple of weeks by looking once again at the deity uh, of Christ. And we're going to begin tonight uh, with a creedal statement, I don't know how important creeds are to you. They should be very, very important to you. Uh, we live in a postmodern world and uh, statements uh, of theology uh, written uh, 1,700 years ago have little weight or significance for a lot of people, including a lot of people in the wider church. But uh, if I, if I said to you, uh, that a creed is a statement of Orthodox Christianity, so that if you don 't believe what the creed says you 're not a Christian in the sense that whatever it is you believe it 's not Christianity um, because that 's what a creed is a creed is a statement of Christianity believed by the the wide church universal not not just like a confession of faith, you know, what Presbyterians believe or Baptists believe or Methodists believe, and obviously somebody in here believes in fortune cookies. Um, uh, but um, a creed is a statement of truth held by the universal church, uh, the church Catholic, as we say, with, with a small c, uh, a ch- the church universal. Uh, and one of those creeds is the Nicene Creed, or uh, of three. 325 uh, A.D. 325, or the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed of 381, um, the, the additional an additional statement about the Holy Spirit occurs in the later Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed. Uh, sometimes the two are confused, and, and they're simply referred to as the Nicene uh, Creed. But it it contains this statement. Uh, and in one Lord, I believe, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds. Uh, actually, the, the Greek, and the Nicene Creed was written in Greek, um, uh, perhaps begotten of the Father before all ages, uh, the Greek is eons. Um, before before space and time, before creation. Uh, and uh, our theme this evening is the pre-existence of Christ, that Christ exists um, before he was born, before he was conceived, uh, before uh, 4 BC when he was born in Bethlehem, before he was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary, Christ has had an existence. He already existed. Actually, he existed before Abraham and before Adam and before creation itself. Christ has an existence. So, there's a correlation between the pre-existence of Jesus and the deity of Jesus. But, but that, that correlation is a tricky one because there were some people like Arians, I mentioned under, under 1A3 here, Arians... And we'll say more about the Arians later this fall. Uh, Arianism was a heresy uh, in the uh, third, fourth uh, centuries. um, And uh, believed that Jesus uh, was uh, pre-existent, that he was before creation. um, But he was himself a created being. Uh, There was a time when the sun was not, was the statement of the Arians. Uh, the, the principal name that we remember uh, doing battle with Arians uh, was the name of Athanasius. Uh, Athanasius contra mundum, Athanasius uh, against the world. Now Athanasius himself was not a particularly um, attractive figure. Uh, he was a soldier, he was... Uh, He was rough and ready in his speech. Uh, uh, He was sometimes impolite in the way he spoke. Uh, There are lots of things about Athanasius that we don't particularly like, uh, I think, but but he was certainly orthodox in his Christology. Uh, And uh, and, uh, uh, the Arians believed in the pre-existence of Christ in the sense that he pre-existed the cosmos or he pre-existed the universe, Um, but there was a point at which even Jesus was created because the supreme being, the supreme source of all is the Father, is God the Father. And Jesus is, is sort of subordinate to that. Now we're, we'll come back to Arianism uh, at a later point. Uh, I simply want to point out here that the, the Nicene Creed here says two things about Jesus. Jesus that he is the only begotten Son of God uh, and and that he is begotten of the Father before all world, all worlds. Uh, that, that term uh, begotten is a, a troublesome term. It's, uh, uh, we speak of the Father as unbegotten and the Son as begotten and the Spirit as proceeding uh, that 's how the doctrine of the Trinity came to be formulated uh, there are three, There are three unique properties or characteristics about each person of the Trinity. The Father is unbegotten, the son is begotten, and the spirit proceeds now, If you went and asked uh, the church fathers who coined those terms, what does unbegotten, unbegotten and begotten and Proceeding actually mean they actually had no answers to that uh, it was just a way it was just a way of of distinguishing one from uh, from another now contemporary expressions of the Nicene Creed uh, have added they, they feel that the Nicene creed didn 't shut all the doors as it were and they 've added eternally begotten uh, to prevent a, a form of Arianism as though begotten might mean, you know, begotten for us means giving birth to, and therefore there is a time at which the parent exists and the, and the offspring does not. Now, now, now just follow me for a second, and, and you've forgotten how you have to put your thinking caps on to come here on a Wednesday night. One is called a father and one is called a son. The Bible refers to one as a father and refers to the other as a son. Now, the only way we have of thinking about a father and a son is the language of begetting. One begets the other. And in our experience of that, one precedes the other. There is a time when the son is not. There there was a time when you want even a glint in your father's eye, if I can put it that way. Uh, Certainly, it's true of every single person in this room, because it's true of every single person in the universe, that the Father precedes in space and time the Son. So there's a slight problem, isn't there, about using the language of begetting, but what other language can you use when the Bible itself speaks of one as a father and one as a son, unless, unless you use the term eternal, that there never was a time when the Son was not. Well, we haven't even got to the difficult parts yet. That's just the kind of introduction. Uh, let's let's go into the Bible. Uh, that's the statement of the creed. But how did you ar- how did the creed arrive at that st- at that statement? And so we need to go back to the Bible here. Uh, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the first few things. Um, there are specific titles uh, attributed. Uh, to Jesus, um, that that indicate um, that he is pre-existent. That there is there is a someone, there is a there is a him, there is a he before he appears in the form of a baby in a manger in Bethlehem. The the he exists before Bethlehem. Uh, so the Gospel of Mark, for example. Uh, in the very opening statement, uh, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, this is John the Baptist, preparing the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Actually, that citation in Mark is a conflation of two sources in the Old Testament. Uh, one is Malachi 1.3 and the other is uh, Isaiah 40 and verse 3. In both of the passages, the Lord is, is Jehovah, is Yahweh himself. Uh, this, is, uh, this is a reference to Jesus as Lord. Uh, that the one that John the Baptist is preparing the way for is the Lord in other words that the lord, and obviously the lord has an existence before jesus so so the jesus who is born is none other than yahweh he is none other than jehovah he is none other than the lord A similar thing in um, Mark 115, we're just halfway through the first chapter of Mark's gospel, the time has come, the kingdom of God is near, Jesus introduces the kingdom with the coming of Jesus, the kingdom comes with the coming of Jesus, the kingdom is present, it is here and now, because the king is present here and now, Jesus, the, the kingdom comes because the King. Comes So Jesus is the king, the king who rules and reigns, the king of the Old Testament. In other words, there is a king who exists prior to the coming of the kingdom. And a similar thing uh, can be said about uh, the Bible's reference to the Son of Man. Uh, The Son of Man is an allusion to uh, Daniel chapter 7. Uh, it used to be thought uh, 150 years ago, it used to be thought that when the Bible spoke of Jesus as the Son of God, it was referring to Jesus' deity, and when the Bible spoke of Jesus as the Son of Man, it was referring to his humanity. Actually, that's, that's completely false, because both titles are an allusion to his deity, the Son of Man figure in Daniel 7 isn't a figure of a human being. It's, it's a, a figure of someone who has, who has eternal power and can, can change the course of, of history. So Jesus referring to himself as the Son of Man, it was his favorite self-designation, which means that Jesus spent a lot of time studying Daniel chapter 7 and and drawing from Daniel chapter 7, and seeing himself, therefore, as uh, the eternal God of which the Son of Man speaks. But let's move uh, now to uh, specific biblical passages um, that speak very clearly of the pre-existence of Christ. Uh, John 8:58. before Abraham was, uh, I am. Uh, we've just been looking uh, on Wednesdays at first, and uh, if you thought you had a déjà vu moment a few moments ago, yes, we did sing the same hymn uh, at lunchtime. Uh, today because it happens to be my favorite hymn and it happens to be the hymn I once sung at my funeral, so if I drop dead in the next few days, just remember I said that, uh, I want you to sing how sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. It's one of my favorite, uh, all-time favorite hymns. Um, John uh, 5, 58 uh, refers to J- Jesus saying, I am, uh, we've been looking at the I am sayings at Wednesdays at first now for the last uh, two or three months. It is of course an allusion to the passages in Exodus 3 and again in Exodus chapter 6 where uh, God is uh, saying to Moses to go back to Egypt and Moses says, you know, what name shall I give them when I go back to Egypt? Uh, And uh, the name that is given to Moses is I am that I am and then it's abbreviated simply to I am. And I am in Hebrew sounds like... Uh, Yahweh. It sounds like the the divine name. So the divine name, uh, Yahweh, and the verb to be sound something similar in the Hebrew. Uh, he is the the ever existing one. It it, it means more than that, and it, it's possible that you could render it. I will be in the future tense. I will be what I will be, uh, uh, rather than in the present t- tense. I am that I am. But Jesus. When Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am, he's saying two things. First of all, he's saying, I have an existence before Abraham. You know, if you went about saying, I, had, I have an existence before President uh, Lincoln. I have a, an existence uh, before M- Martin Luther. I mean, they would lock you up, right? Because that, that, that's, that's a sign that you're losing the plot. But Jesus is saying just that. Before Abraham, and and there was no more important figure in to the Jews than than Abraham. They were the children of Abraham. Abraham was their father, and and Jesus is saying, I have an existence before Abraham. But it's a a double whammy. Not only is he saying, I I exist before Abraham, he's saying, I am, and, and, and that is a deliberate illusion to Exodus chapter 3 that he is Yahweh. He doesn't just exist before Abraham. He exists as Yahweh. He exists as Jehovah, as we used to say. He exists as the divine Lord of the Old Testament. Pretty clear. Jesus is is speaking here of his pre-existence. He has an existence before his incarnate existence, before his fleshly existence. Existence, his human existence he has a divine existence uh, revelation one eight uh, I am the alpha and the Omega says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come uh, the who the who is who own in Greek uh, is an allusion to his continual existence i I, I am because I, I I I I exist because I've always existed. Uh, again, an allusion to his pre-existence. He is the ever-being one. Or John seventeen five, the high priestly prayer. Some of the last words of Jesus. Uh, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory. That I had with you before the world existed. That's very clear, isn't it? Jesus has a self-consciousness. This is Jesus, the human being, speaking here. This is Jesus with a human mind speaking. But he has a a self-awareness. He has a self-consciousness of having existed before the world was created. So as he is anticipating his death, his crucifixion, he's anticipating and and in his incarnation something of his divine glory has been has been veiled, has been kept from view as it were. He's anticipating the moment when he will be brought back into the presence of his heavenly father. Now some, uh, and uh, one particular theologian uh, that's been prominent in the late uh, uh, 20th century and and prominent for many uh, reasons, not not least because uh, he's been one of the figures who's been trying to redefine what we understand by the gospel in the last uh, 25 years or so, uh, uh, James Dunn, uh, uh, Scottish Presbyterian in, in origin, Uh, some argue that John's uh, testimony here is uh, somewhat um, slanted, biased, if you like, because John is trying to give um, a a theological point of view. Now, of course, uh, in in saying that, Dunn is kind of opening the door to what has been a a fairly skeptical view of the gospel of John in the 20th century, and some of you are uh, students are off to college, and uh, they will be encountering this from uh, from uh, liberal and, and otherwise non evangelical uh, Bible teachers uh, who have adopted this view that John has a kind of theological axe to grind and so so necessarily John is kept at a kind of arm's length and and, uh, they have a kind of skeptical view of John 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 is sort of writing after the fact to try and bolster uh, uh, current belief in mid to late first century views about uh, Jesus now of course if you believe the Bible to be the inerrant word of God none of that of course is true Um, But but that's not where the the world of uh, skepticism uh, and the world of uh, liberalism is coming from. So so a lot of of mistrust has been put on statements in John, whether in the Gospel of John or in the book of uh, Revelation. So uh, none of that amounts to anything for us who believe that the whole Bible, John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, the the, the 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 whole Bible is the inerrant word uh, of God, but you have to know that uh, some of your some of your children, uh, in uh, in school perhaps, or, and certainly in college, uh, will be taught a very different view of the Bible, and they need to be aware uh, of that uh, of that opinion. Uh, let's move to Paul, uh, Galatians four four, uh, when the fullness of time had come. And and Paul isn't saying there, uh, I think, something about uh, the providence of uh, the Roman Empire and Roman roads and uh, common lingua franca of Greek, uh, so that the gospel could could spread. Uh, That's a secondary issue. Paul has something much more uh, much more uh, focused when he says, "When the fullness of time," Uh, he's speaking. I think he has one eye on Genesis 3:15 that the seed of the woman would crush the head of, of Satan. And Jesus is that seed of the woman. So when, when the prophecy of God had come to its fulfillment, to its, to its fruition, um, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. Well, that's kind of a der statement, isn't it? I mean, how else is he going to be born? Uh, I, I mean, unless Jesus would come on a, you know, with a stork, uh, for, you know, and be planted at somebody's door. I mean, of course, he's going to be born of a woman. So, so why is Paul saying "born of a woman" as though it's loaded with theological significance? Well, it is loaded with theological significance. He's saying, "I'm thinking of Genesis three fifteen. He is the seed of the woman Eve, right? This is the promise that's made right at the very beginning of, of the Bible, and now when that." promises come to fulfillment, he is the seed of the woman. Paul knew how babies were born, right? So don't, you know, never read the Bible with the suspicion that you know more than they did. Um, That's always, that's probably always an error. Um, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. God sent forth His Son, Um, the very verb here, God God sent forth His Son, implies the Son already exists. If the Son has no pre-existence, the the verb is is wrong. Paul should have said, when the fullness of time was come, God creates His Son. God forms his son, something like that. But when he says he sends him forth, it it necessarily says that in Paul's mind, the son already exists and he is sending him forth now as the incarnate one. Uh, 2 Corinthians 8, 9, uh, a very uh, important verse uh, in the middle of a... A couple of chapters in which Paul is talking about uh, the, uh, the, uh, the offering for the Jerusalem church and uh, the, 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 the poverty that has arisen because of the famine in Jerusalem. Uh, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. It's a wonderful Christmas uh, text, of course. Uh, It alludes to Bethlehem. It alludes to the incarnation. But the point is that Paul is saying he was rich and he became poor. In other words, he has a pre-existence. And that pre-existence is an existence of richness. It's an existence of deity. He was the second person of the Godhead. He was the Son of God. And the Son of God, he became poor for us. But it contains the the presupposition of his pre existence. Uh, Colossians one uh, fifteen through seventeen, um, it, it's, uh, it's one of those uh, little hymns that Paul seems to be either 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 he's composing this hymn under the inspiration of the Spirit, or as some scholars think, that the hymn already had an existence in the fledgling early church and Paul is simply citing uh, the hymn. That's that's possible. Now there are a couple of uh, there are a couple of things here that we need to uh, allude to. One is the use of uh, the term "firstborn," and that that sort of might conjure up the idea in your mind that Paul is suggesting that Jesus uh, Jesus uh, is the first thing that God creates right he, he creates the world he creates the universe he creates adam and eve but first of all he creates jesus he is the firstborn that would be a complete misunderstanding of the use of firstborn uh, in uh, the old testament and paul i think is using an old testament idea of firstborn as the one who inherits everything so it's not it's not an allusion here to to Jesus being the first of creation as as Jesus being the one who inherits everything. He is the, he is the inheritor. If he had meant to use, uh, to allude to the idea that Jesus is the first of creation, uh, there's a perfectly good Greek word that he could have used uh, rather than uh, the word um, uh, uh, prototokos that, that he uses. Uh, there's another word that he, could have, uh, that he could have used. Actually, it looks as though Jesus, uh, Paul, is, a, a, is a, making a very direct reference here to a psalm, Psalm 89. It's a messianic psalm, uh, a psalm, and I will make him the firstborn. Uh, I will make him the inheritor. Uh, The second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, will become the inheritor. Uh, That's what the illusion is. But look, go back to the the, uh, passage in Colossians 1. And what is it saying? It's saying that all of creation comes about in and through Jesus. So everything that is in the space-time continuum is a product of the creation of Jesus. Jesus creates it. It is in and through him that the space-time continuum comes into being. Well, again, uh, and I'm, 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 I'm kind of belaboring the point here, uh, because I want you to see the massive evidence of the New Testament for the pre-existence of Jesus. Now, look at uh, Philippians 2, and uh, I want us to... Um, I want us to spend some time here, and uh, uh, we'll be back here again. Actually, we'll be back here on Sunday mornings for a few weeks. So this is a kind of primer for, uh, for a sermon or two or three um, that we'll, that we'll uh, uh, preach on Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Uh, again, this is, uh, in all likelihood, this is a hymn. Um, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself uh, of no reputation. He emptied himself. He took the form of a servant, was found in fashion as a man. That passage. Uh, And the the hymn, and and I'm quoting that from the King James Version, because it's the only one I have in my head, Um, But that hymn goes through three different states. It speaks of the pre-existence of Jesus, it speaks of the incarnation of Jesus, and it speaks of the exaltation of Jesus. So it goes from pre-existence to incarnation to exaltation. And we're only going to look here this evening at the first part of that hymn, the pre-existence of Jesus. Have this mind... Uh, among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now notice, um, notice that Paul, when he wants to make an ethical point, point, right? and this is, uh, he wants people to think in a certain way, he wants them to have a certain mindset that is governed by the incarnation of Jesus. And the incarnation of Jesus is all about self-denial. Jesus is the son of God, he's entitled to, to everything, he's entitled to worship, but he, but he veils all of his native glory, though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor. But right? have that mindset, uh, you know, we have the opposite mindset, we have the mindset today, and it may not be you, but it may be your children. Uh, of entitlement, you know, we know our rights, we know what we're entitled to, and and the whole point of the incarnation of Jesus is that he denies his rights. He's, he has these rights, but he says no to these rights because he, he comes for others. Now, that's the ethical, moral point um, that Paul wants to make. But notice, in order to make that point, he's using massive theological statements about the incarnation of Jesus. In other words, he's using theology in the interests of getting us to behave in a certain way. Getting us to think in a certain way. That's why theology is so important. Right? Because theology will change thinking. Theology will change epistemology. Theology will change the way we think about the world, about ourselves, about what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's better and what's best. And and so having, having made that point, let this mind be in you. He now, he now says, though he was in the form of God, no. did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now let's... Uh, Let's think about that. Before he, before he becomes incarnate, which is where this poem is going to go to, right, he, he, he was already in the form of God. Right? So this is, a, this is a statement about Jesus' pre-existence. Did Jesus exist in 10 BC? Yes. Did Jesus exist 100 BC? Yes. Did Jesus exist in the time of Abraham? Yes, did Jesus exist before Abraham? Yes, because Jesus says so. Before Abraham was, I am. Did Jesus exist before creation? Yes, Colossians 1 tells us so. That's pre-existence, but, but how did he exist? In what, in what state did he exist? Did he exist as, as one of many sort of semi-gods, like the Greeks were into? the Greeks, Greeks believed in many gods and, and they were all created they were subordinate to other gods is Jesus a kind of semi-god subordinate to the father who, in whom and through whom Jesus is born well we need to say more than just that Jesus is pre-existent We need to ask the question: In what state was he pre-existent? And here is here is Paul answering the question. He was in the form of God, right? Contemporaneous with his humanity. Contemporaneous with the incarnation there is already existing another form of existence and that form of existence is the form of god now the question arises and we're going to go deep now so get, put put on the oxygen mask and just hold your breath for a second because we're going to go deep here we're going to ask we're going to ask what does form mean Actually, we're going to ask, what does morphe mean? Which is the Greek word that Paul uses here. He was in the form. He was in the morphe of God. He had the form of God. And there are, there are lots of answers. There are three particular answers. One is that Paul was thinking of classical Greek. And in classical Greek, and this would be the views, view of people like Lightfoot and uh, Trench and and even BB Warfield, who uh, who 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 was here, and um, I'm I'm about to disagree with BB Warfield, so hold your breath just for a second, but BB uh, Warfield was a wonderful wonderful theologian, uh, one of the very best. I put him right in the top tier of theologians, uh, and and I'm unworthy to mention his name, um, but BB Warfield, uh, writing of course 100 years ago. Uh, where this view was predominant, thought that morphe came from the world of classical Greek. And morphe in classical Greek means, means something like having, having all the essential properties and characteristics of. And that's, that's good. That, that before he was incarnate, Jesus had all the essential properties And characteristics of God that's a very strong affirmation of the deity of Jesus that before he was born before he was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary he already had an existence he was in the form of God he had all the attributes all the characteristics of deity Then there are others, and and this would be a more uh, more modern view, not modern in the sense of liberal, but modern in the sense of time, um, that what Paul is using here is um, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, otherwise known as the Septuagint. It's what we abbreviate using the letters LXX here. Uh, And because Morphe in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, hang in with me there, is used to translate... The idea of image. Remember in Genesis 1:26 that man was created in the image and likeness of God. So, in other words, morphe means it's an allusion, it's an allusion to the use of image in the Septuagint. That he was he 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 replicated God in some way, in, in the same way that Adam had, had had the image and likeness of God. There were some God like um, qualities uh, about about Jesus, not such a, 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 a strong translation uh, and then there 's a third view and, and this is a very strong view and it 's uh, I think a very a very good view it 's one I think that has a lot of a lot of uh, things going for it um, that uh, morphe is sometimes used synonymously with the idea of glory uh, in the Old Testament. Um, and glory is, is the, the, the very essence of who God is. So, so let's take all three of these together, whether it's from classical Greek or whether it's from the Septuagint or, or whether it's from the Hebrew uh, used synonymously with the idea of glory. Before Jesus became incarnate, before Bethlehem, Jesus had all the essential characteristics of God. Um, he was in that sense like God. He, he had the glory of God. The very, the, 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 the very thing that defines the very essence of God. The pre-existence of Jesus. What's the meaning of pre-existence? Now what are we talking about here? We're not talking about the pre-existence Of his human nature His human nature came into being In 4 BC Right I I say 4 BC because The folks who who invented Our western calendar Almost got it right But not quite So instead of Jesus being born In in zero Actually it's probably 4 BC but, But you get my point there was a time when the human nature of Jesus was not. But right? in 5 BC, there was no human nature of Jesus. When, when Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am, he's not talking about his human nature. That, that, is a, that is a temporal thing. It's a finite thing. It comes into being in the womb of the Virgin Mary. When we talk about the pre-existence of Christ, we're talking about the pre-existence of his divine nature. But we're also speaking of the pre-existence of person. There is only one he. Now that he or him has two natures, a divine and a human nature. The human nature comes into being at 4 BC, but the divine nature has always been. So when we speak of the pre-existence of Christ, we're talking about the pre-existence of his person and specifically of his divine nature. Now note uh, carefully how John weaves his way through all of that in the very basic and yet profound language of the prologue of his gospel. Uh, in the beginning was the Word. In the beginning, right, when, when creation, it, it's a direct allusion to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning God created, so John, John is mimicking the way Genesis, the Bible, begins. In the beginning, w- when creation comes into being, the Word already was. The Word already already had being and then toward the end of that prologue he says in john 1 14, and the word became the word became flesh he moves from an imperfect tense to an aorist tense if you know what that means uh, and, and i don't have time to explain it but but he, he already was and then something became his his flesh became but his divine nature already was Now, there are several things to avoid here when we speak about the pre-existence of Christ. and we're, I'm just going to introduce and then we'll come back to this uh, during the course of this fall. We're going to look at some of the Christological heresies. Uh, and there are many of them. Uh, there are many, many of them. And uh, they, are, they are very important because they're very much alive. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say... They're probably alive in this room because, because we don't realize it, but sometimes we hold views that are actually heresies that were condemned by the early church without even realizing that that we do. Uh, some of these heresies are, are sadly very much alive, and they're very much alive sometimes in the loose language that we have with relationship to uh, the way in which the human nature and the divine nature relate to each other in the one person who is the son of God, now one of the things to avoid is monarchianism sorry, but there are these are terms uh, they're, they're long standing terms uh, one monarch uh, one arche one uh, one, uh, one 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 um, there is more than one who is the one God. Um, I remember Ligan uh, Duncan, and only Ligan Duncan could get away with this, uh, in a morning sermon in the First uh, Presbyterian Church. Uh, in full flow and uh, uh, I mean he was, he was just he was just going and full flow and then all of a sudden out came this sentence God is not an undifferentiated monad he said and there was silence I mean stunned silence and, uh, and I looked around and I saw some people writing it down in the back of their Bibles and then I, what did he say? God is not an undifferentiated monad. Um, there is more than one who is the one God. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, and each one are He's. There is a He who is the Father, there is a He who is the Son, there is a He who is the Spirit, but there is only one God. Um, the fact that the Son has a pre-existence as A divine being means that since there is only one divine being, that divine being is differentiated. There is a differentiation within the divine being. Because the Father is the divine being and the Son is the divine being. But the Father is not the Son and the Son is not the Father. Now... Monarchianism manifested itself in several ways, at least two ways. Um, one is what I would call, and, and what we did call, I think, last uh, semester, uh, the Peter Sellers view of the Trinity. You know, Peter Sellers. Uh, what, you know, he came on in the movie, and it was the same him. There was just the Peter Sellers, but he was he was different different characters. Uh, so he would he would be an actor pretending to be this and then that and then the other, uh, but there was actually only the one person. He was just playing three different parts. And there is a form of monarchism, it's called modalistic monarchism, and uh, advocated by uh, a man uh, by the name of uh, Sibelius in particular, chief proponent of it, um, that it's, it's, it's the one God playing three different roles, but not at the same time, of course. So he appears as the Father in the Old Testament, and then he appears as the Son in the time of his incarnation, and then in the rest of the New Testament he appears as the as the Holy Spirit. But, but he's playing three different parts. Um, avoid that kind of thinking. And then there's another form of uh, monarchism, which is called dynamic monarchism, that Jesus is not really God in the sense of the Father, but that Jesus is is adopted into the Godhead in some way at a certain point in his life, um, maybe at his baptism, maybe at the transfiguration, uh, maybe at his ascension, uh, that Jesus is adopted into the, into the 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 tribal deities uh, a kind of and and again that's sometimes called dynamic monarchism the son is God he pre-exists as God but he is not exhaustive of who God is there is more than one who is the one God now if you think you understand that you really don't We have to say something, Augustine said, in order that we don't find ourselves saying nothing at all. Right? We're, we're, we have to say something here. But we are like, you know, the doctrine of the Trinity is, is in one sense, shallow enough for a child to paddle in. But it's also deep enough for an elephant to swim in. Um, so avoid monarchism. Avoid Arianism. We, we spoke about Arianism earlier. Uh, Arius, and we'll speak about that a little later in our course together. Uh, uh, Arianism uh, at, its, at its best uh, uh, was a view that, God, that Jesus was less than God. He was a kind of semi-God in some way, that, that he was a created being. Um, he, he may have had godlike properties, but at the end of the day, he was a created being. And the third thing to avoid is uh, subordinationism. And again, we'll come back to this uh, a little later. But the point here is that if Jesus is God, if he pre exists as God, he has the same power, the same authority, the same wisdom, the same intellect as God the Father. He is not subordinate in his essence to the Father. Well, a lot of things to think about, but this is the trajectory down which we're going to go this uh, fall, and uh, we're going to move from considerations of his deity to considerations of his humanity and how the two natures, the divine and human nature, uh, relate to each other and what we call uh, the hypostatic uh, union. Now, do keep these... uh, these uh, outlines uh, we didn't give you a free folder that only happened once (laughs) so you've got to empty the folder and bring it you know put that in a cupboard somewhere and bring the empty folder with you now on wednesday nights well the rest of you uh uh, some of you are going to go to our prayer meeting in uh, in smith uh, chapel and and go there as quickly as you can and the rest of you can be dismissed but let me let me close in prayer our father we do uh, we do thank you we Thank you for our Savior. Thank you for, our, uh, for the one who came uh, to rescue us from our sins, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God. He didn't have to reach out and grasp hold of deity because it was already his. He already possessed it. Uh, he is the only God there is, and yet there is more than one who is that one God. And our minds begin to swim as we even try to think through these things and yet this is what you have revealed in your word we pray for grace to be submissive to it and to rejoice in it because we know it was for us and for our salvation that he came so write these things now upon our hearts for jesus sake we pray amen